Good morning again. You know, sometimes it's, it's interesting how, how just in my little part of the world, uh, focusing on bringing a message from God's Word each week, how events completely outside and unrelated to my control impact what happens here. Sometimes it leads to a big change. Uh, back when things were going into lockdown, the message was supposed to be about divorce that week, and I thought, I, I don't know if I want to talk about that this particular week. But then sometimes, when you're about to talk about the only foundation we can really trust and rely on, sometimes things happen that relate to that. And I don't know about you, but this week I felt like our country, if not the world itself, is on a very shaky foundation that often feels like it's about to collapse. And in the past year, so much has changed so quickly, it's hard to recognize the world anymore. And things that were once unimaginable now seem commonplace. And so in this season of pandemics and violent mobs, it's really hard to know what exactly is our society built upon. It's hard to know what we should build our lives upon. But that's important to figure out our foundation. Because the consequences of our faith and our foundation, the foundation we have for life, There's eternal consequences to what we decide to build our life upon. What we build our life upon makes the difference between our eternity, whether it's in heaven or separated from God in hell. Foundations are important for life and for anything that you're trying to build. I know my wife and I are now in the process of uh, house hunting, and I've been reading things about what to look for when you look at a house. And I was reading about if you go into a house, if, if the doors don't close well or there's cracks in the ceilings, it could be a sign that something is wrong with the foundation. And so by looking for those things, it helps you avoid a costly mistake. Now we have arrived at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's been I think a little over a year that we've been in this passage. Part of that is because we took a long break while we were not meeting here in the church building. And the sermon ends with a passage about our foundation for life. So as we enter this new year, we should ask, what are we building on? What is our life based upon? Is it based upon our reason, our experience, or is it based upon something else? So this morning, let's finish the Sermon on the Mount and see what Jesus has to say about a foundation for life, and a hope that he offers. If you're not already there, I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles or look up on the screen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. And once you're there, if you're here in the sanctuary, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word, and then follow along as I read our passage for today. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. This is Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Jesus is talking, finishing the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what he says. Everyone, then, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Lord, we humbly come before your word today. Help us to see the rock, the foundation that we should build on. When the rest of the world builds on shifting, sinking sand that results in chaos and confusion, may we rest firm in you. Thank you, Lord, for the foundation you offer through a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ that can sustain us through whatever may come. I pray, God, that we will see that foundation, that we will respond to the Sermon on the Mount by knowing and obeying you, because you are worthy. You must increase. You must be praised. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. The words we're reading today are the conclusion, the very end of the Sermon on the, uh, the, Sermon on the Mount, a message Jesus gives in Matthew 5 through 7. He, it's a sermon, it's a summary of his teaching. And at this very end of this long sermon that goes through three chapters, that's where we are. So if we're really going to understand this conclusion and what Jesus wants us to grasp, it's important for us to think about what's come before and to ask, what is the Sermon on the Mount about? What is it about? And what we've been emphasizing is that the Sermon on the Mount is about exceeding righteousness. It's about a righteousness, a goodness that exceeds, that goes beyond the way others live. It's an emphasis upon our character is what Jesus highlights in this sermon. And he begins in a very famous passage known as the Beatitudes to talk about our character is where our life of honoring the Lord should start. He says in Matthew verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This character we read in these verses, this is the character of a true follower of Jesus Christ. This is the way that true followers of Christ are to live. 
Jesus goes on to say that they will be salt and light in a lost world. And then Jesus explains his role in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is fulfilling what God has already said in his word. And he'll go on in the rest of chapter 5 to give examples of how God gives a law, but Jesus fulfills it, extends, expands, talks about a righteousness, a goodness that exceeds the words that were merely written on the page. God's desire goes above what he says about anger or lust, marriage and divorce. It affects how we treat people with honesty, that we act without retaliation, and that we treat our enemies with love. His point is verse 20, the second verse I have up here. In the whole sermon, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness, your goodness, your actions, your standing before God exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the point he's emphasizing, knowing him and living a life that reflects that. A life of exceeding righteousness will impact how we grow spiritually. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6. He says it will impact how we give, how we pray, and how we fast. He talks about that we will not live in anxiety, but we will live in trust in God. We will not judge others, but we will depend on God to answer our prayers. In fact, when it comes to others, whatever we wish that others would do to us, we do also to them. But at this point in the sermon, as he gets to the end in chapter 7, it's necessary for his audience and for us to make a choice. Will we follow the teachings of this sermon or will we not? Jesus gives multiple examples about how we must choose. We must choose between the wide gate or the narrow gate. We must choose between the broad way or the narrow, hard, difficult way. We must choose between good, healthy fruit or bad, diseased fruit. We must choose to be known by Jesus or to go our own way. And now, at the very end of the sermon, we're really just left with two big questions to answer. And the first question that the text asks us is, what is the foundation of your life? What is the foundation of of your life. There's words like this also in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, but let's look here in Matthew. We'll start with verses 24 and 25. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Jesus wants everyone to hear this message and respond appropriately. No matter who you are, these words from Jesus apply to you. And he makes it clear that he's talking about our actions. When he says foundation, when he says founded on the rock, he's talking about our actions. Are we living the faith we profess. Look at the words. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house upon 
the rock. It's not just believing something. It's a call for action that flows from our belief. Jesus's point is that obedience to God's word shows our wisdom. Obeying God shows that we live on a solid rock rather than the shifting sands of foolishness. A wise person is the one who hears or who reads what Jesus says and then does it. End of story. That's the point he's trying to make. If we know the truth, if we know what God has said, if we've listened to the Sermon on the Mount, then we are responsible to obey the truth. We will be held accountable to follow what Christ has said. This is what true wisdom is. Scholar Danny Aiken puts it this way. True wisdom is the ability to see life from God's perspective. And then not only that, but then to act accordingly. You can understand, know God's word. You can have the whole Bible memorized. But if you're not acting upon it, then you are not exercising true wisdom. A wise person, though, listening to this sermon would have seen that Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. He is someone to be followed and someone to be obeyed. A wise person would recognize that culture and even religious popularity will shift and change, but God's true wisdom will last forever. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy 2. He says, God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, this is what God's foundation is. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, from sin, from wrong. This was a real interesting verse. I hadn't, it's not one that's running around in my brain very often, but I really like it. Look at what he's saying. God's firm foundation is that God knows those who are his. He knows those who have a relationship with him. Praise God. But there's a second part to that. The second part is those who know God Everyone who names the name of the Lord departs from iniquity and sin. They leave it behind them. Those who know God depart from sin. They live for him. That's what Jesus is saying with his example of the man who built on a rock versus the man who built on the sand. His point is that obedience to God's word is necessary to follow him, to be built on the rock. One Bible scholar, Michael J. Wilkins, said the evidence of whether one is truly a believer is in whether one does the words of Jesus. That's what our text says. Jesus, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. The word does there with the emphasis. I didn't add that. That's what he put there, this author. And this isn't something that these people are making up. This comes from scripture itself. Jesus' half-brother James said, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In that passage in James, he goes on to talk about if you just hear but you don't do the word, it's like you go to a mirror and look at yourself and then you immediately forget what you saw. That's how foolish it is. For Jesus to hear but not to obey God's word, that is the same as choosing the wide gate or the broad way that leads to destruction. But obeying Jesus, obeying his teaching, obeying God's word, that shows that we know him. As James will say about Abraham a chapter later, he says, you see that his faith was active along with his works and actions. Faith was completed by his works. 
Now, Jesus is not calling us to a sinless perfection. He's not saying you can never mess up at all. Christians will stumble. They will fall. They will fail. But if they truly know God, they have a fundamental commitment to obeying the Lord. And when they stumble, fall, fail, when they sin, they will repent. They will turn away. They will depart from that to depend closer to their Lord and to his Holy Spirit. And then they will grow in their faith. They do what God has said. And they need this foundation because we are told a storm is coming. Rain fell, floods came, winds blew and beat on that house. And when Jesus is talking about this storm, he's talking about God's all-knowing final judgment. The prophets in the Old Testament talked about this. Jeremiah says, behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. Now maybe that you think that sounds really harsh. Why would God do something like that? Well, friends, God is perfect. He is perfect righteousness and goodness. And that means when there is sin, rebellion, rejection of the way he intended the world to work, he cannot be good unless he acts to judge that sin. And so when he sees wickedness, he must judge and act upon it. That's why the good news of Christ, that Christ died for us, that he took our punishment is so important. But God must act upon it. That's the type of judgment that's being talked about when Jesus mentions this storm. Now, we sometimes talk about this passage in a different way. We sometimes say it's referring to the storms, the challenges of life. And there absolutely are things that could be called storms in our lives. One could call the current political situation in our country a storm, or or perhaps you've experienced uh, pain or illness, maybe the loss of a loved one or some other traumatic event. And those are terrible And yes, challenges that we could call storms and faith in Jesus will sustain us through all of those things. As British pastor J.C. Ryle said, the religion that can stand trial, that is the true religion that can last through those trials. That's absolutely true. But here, when Jesus talks about this rain, this floods, this wind, he probably mostly has in mind God's final judgment. What he's saying is that if you know and obey me, if you know and obey what I've said in this sermon, you will be safe from God's judgment. And when he's saying that, he's not saying we earn salvation, that we have to do the right things to make sure that we're safe from hell and separation from God. He's not saying that. He's saying, if you know me, you will have a lifestyle. You will live a particular way that will flow from the fact that you have a relationship with me. Another pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says, True faith always shows itself in a man and a woman's general appearance, the total impression that he gives. We see faith there, but we also see it in what he says and does in particular. Our lifestyle as a whole should match what we say and do on a daily basis. And so if we do not do what God says in his word, if we see what God says, we say, you know what? I'm going to do this other thing. If we do that consistently and willingly, we ignore what God has said, then we do not have confidence that we will be safe from God's judgment. 
That's Jesus' point here. If you are living consistently for me, not perfectly, but he's saying if you've built a foundation on living for me, doing what I've said in my word, then you can have confidence thinking about God's coming judgment. But if you don't, then you do not have that confidence. In this passage, Jesus calls us to obey him because only then will we be like this wise man, the one whose house did not fall or collapse. The alternative as verses 26 and 27 tell us, is that everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is a powerful verse with a very simple point. Anything, any other foundation we base our life upon other than Jesus will fail. It will fall. Every time I read this passage, I I think of two songs run through my head. One is the song we sang at the very beginning, a kid's song that just basically uses the words of this passage. It's, It's very catchy, an easy way to remember this text of scripture. The other song that runs through my head is a song from a Christian group, Casting Crowns, called American Dream. And the song is based on somebody who's trying to do everything they can to build a life for themselves. But as the chorus says, this man, he works and he builds with his own two hands. He pours all he has in a castle made with sand. But the wind and the rain are coming crashing in, and time will tell just how long his kingdom stands. The song reflects a a father, and he's working very hard at his job, but he's neglecting the eternal value of time with his family. And the point is, he's trying to build a foundation, a life that won't last because he's not building on the right thing. Jesus is talking about something similar, building on sand. Perhaps the sand is a reference to the sand that was around the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus did much of his preaching and probably delivered this sermon. Notice the only difference between these two men in our passage. The only difference is their foundation. They build the same house. They experience the same storm. Describes the same way. Rain fell, floods came, winds blew, and beat on that house. The only difference is their foundation. But that is the key difference. Because for the man who built on the sand, it results in a great fall, a mighty crash, implying that it's heard and seen by others. And unfortunately, we know this all too well. We've seen the obvious lesson of false fallen Christians and their failures are declared loudly to the world. And that should warn us that what our life should be like in the danger of professing to know Christ and then being exposed for not following him. The problem we have in this is that a foundation is not something you see with your eyes. A foundation is underground. You can't look and tell that it's there. Sometimes you you can, but in most cases, it's incredibly difficult to see. And the same is true in our individual lives because it's impossible to see another person's heart and their relationship with God. Our heart, what we trust for salvation, determines our destiny. Jesus seems to really have in mind the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, who only had a surface righteousness. They looked good on the outside, but Jesus is saying there's no foundation 
underneath. They may do things that look good, but in their heart, they're not honoring me. And they're headed for eternal destruction. The book of Proverbs says, the wicked are overthrown and they are no more. But the house of the righteous will stand. Seems a verse like that was in Jesus's mind when he spoke these words. The question then becomes, if we're going to honor what Jesus said, if we're going to live for him, it's important for us to know what our life is built upon. And so what would it look like if our life was built upon the sand? Well, there were three kinds of examples that floated through my mind just as I was thinking about this. One thing uh, life built on sand will look like it will be a life of selfishness, of, of living for oneself, living to please oneself. It will mean that we only do what God says when it's good and it's convenient for us. If God says something that kind of runs against how I like to live my life, we'll all ignore that, but I'll do what God says that makes me look good. It's only obeying the parts of God's word that you like. Oh, I like what Jesus says there. I'm going to do that. Oh, I I don't like what he says here, so I'm not going to do that one. It'll be a life that refuses to look at sin or problems in your own life. Many people who live on a foundation of sand based on selfishness, they may talk a lot about sin and problems, but it's sin and error in others, not in themselves. One form of this selfishness may be confidence in how you practice your religion or your faith. You may have confidence in, I live a life that looks good. I do the right things. I go to the right churches. I say the right things, but there is no impact on your heart. We talked about this before Christmas when I was sharing the verses before. The scary truth is that someone can look like a committed church member, but be headed for hell and eternal separation from God. Their heart It's not right before God, and their actions do not flow from their heart. Let me warn you, God will not care what you did for the Christian cause if you do not know him, and if your heart is not in the right place. It will not matter. So we could build a foundation on sand from our selfishness. We could also build a foundation on sand if we live our life being controlled by others. If we let what others say and others do and others think, we let that control and determine our actions. We can live this way if we need the approval of others for life. If we need people to like us, whether it's in our personal relationships or perhaps over social media, we need affirmation from others rather than from God. We value what they say more than what God has said. This isn't a problem out there. This is a problem that can seep into our hearts. We can get sucked into seeking approval from others. The truth is that we will never please everyone. And if you try to live that way, in the end, you will fail. It is a life built on sand. The final kind of example I want to talk about is is a hard one, but a relevant one. We live a life on sand if we believe that the world's problems happen outside of us. We believe that the problems in my life are not my fault. Now, I'm not saying that something could have happened to you and that there's something that someone did that impacted you. Yes, uh, we can suffer. We can suffer abuse, oppression from others. But I'm talking about you identify all or the vast majority of the problems in the world as things that happen outside of you. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenges us to look at our hearts. 
He says in Matthew 7, we just read earlier in this chapter, he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The current expression of this that is all too relevant in in our country, in the world, and even in our churches, is making our life, our joy, our passion, politics, and political success. The problem with this is thinking, well, pastor, the problem in the world, the problem in the country is that the wrong people are in charge. If the right people were in charge, then everything would be perfect. Now, don't mishear me. There's an element of truth In element truth, leaders have influence and authority, absolutely. But if our life is based around the idea that if the right people are in charge, then everything's going to be okay, that is a terrible foundation for life. It's an easy one to believe because it lets you off the hook. It's not your fault things are wrong. It's, It's those other people who are in charge. It's not your fault if you tell lies or you spread lies. It's not your fault if you break the law. After all, the other side does it too. What's important is getting our people into power. And this kind of life with no accountability can produce devastating results. And we all saw it this week and throughout this past year, what happens when you make politics your God and your foundation for life. So let's be clear as Christians. Committing acts of violence or vandalism because of an election or because a government, your government does something you disagree with, that is the result of a life built on a foundation of sand. If you commit acts of violence or vandalism because you don't like an election or something a government does, that is a life reflective of a foundation of sand. And I know that because Jesus said in the Beatitudes what a Christian life is to look like. And violence and vandalism, there is nothing poor in spirit, meek, righteous, merciful, pure, or peacemaking about that. Nothing at all. John will say this in his book. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, with Jesus, while we walk in darkness and reject what he has said, then we lie. We lie and we do not practice the truth. There is nothing, nothing Christian about a riot. Nothing at all. Now, I I realize, I realize that building our lives on politics, it's a larger problem than any one people, one group, one issue, one side. I know that. I know that. But I cannot control what the rest of America does. But I can say that we, the church, this church, we must do better. We must clearly distinguish between the things that are true and the things that will matter for all eternity. We must put that on one side from the things that are lies, conspiracies, and that will not matter when Christ returns. Brothers and sisters, in eternity, no one, no one will care who won the 2020 election. No one. That doesn't mean it's not important, but it means we have to put things in perspective and not throw out God's word because we don't like the results of an election. If we head on that path, that is a foundation of sand, a path to eternal destruction. It is a lack of trust in God. It is making politics 
our God instead of the Lord God Almighty. Our life must be built on one or the other, knowing Jesus and obeying him or the sand that will fail and fall. And these words here should scare us just like the other ones, because there's many people who think that they are prepared, that they are living the right way. They think they are safe, but they will discover someday that they are not. We must choose to know and obey Jesus now. I go to the Proverbs again. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. When I read that, it reminded me of another line from that Casting Crown song. I'll take a shack on the rock over a castle in the sand. This brings us to the very end of the Sermon of the Mount and to a final important question for us to ask. How will you, how will we respond to Jesus? Listen to verses 28 and 29 again. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The most important part of the Sermon on the Mount is the person who preached it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If we see nothing else, we should see him in these words. Unfortunately, it seems the crowd only had a superficial reaction to this, and most of them seem to leave unchanged. Oh, we see this word astonished or amazed, some translations have, and that sounds really good, but it seems to only be an emotional reaction, not a real commitment to faith. Because this is the same word that's used later in Matthew, in Matthew 13, to describe people in Jesus's hometown. They're amazed, they're astonished at what he says, and then they turn around and reject him. Jesus' words stunned these people, but did they make a difference? Pastor Charles Spurgeon says it was no fault on their part to be astonished, but it was a grave crime to be astonished and nothing more. You can be amazed at what Jesus says. You can be amazed at how powerful, how relevant the words of Christ, how amazing the Bible is. You can think it's incredible and your life still not be changed. So instead, we must believe, we must act on the truth that Jesus has divine authority. As the text says, they were amazed, astonished, because he was teaching them as one who had authority. This authority in Christ's words was recognized by those who heard him. We read in several places, in John 7, some officers of the temple say, no one ever spoke like this man. In the Gospel of Luke, they were astonished at his teaching, I like this way of talking about it. His word, what Christ said, possessed authority. His words possessed authority. Jesus makes it clear here, or the text says, the people saw that he was teaching them as one who has authority, not as their scribes. They saw there was a contrast between the teaching of Jesus and the teachings of men, the scribes and the religious leaders. Trained scribes, Pharisees taught from the scriptures, from what God had said in the Old Testament, or more often, they would instead quote what other people had said 
about the scriptures. And that was the extent of their teaching. Jesus, though, taught with real authority. He quoted scripture, but his teaching was based on his authority. In Matthew 28, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He makes it clear he has been given authority by God. People who heard him had a choice between him and what he said or between the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus had far greater authority than any preacher or teacher, even and especially me. Now, when I preach, I quote other people. I I share what others say about God because my words are anything I know is not coming from myself or my own authority. It's coming from God. I am not God. Jesus is God. I fail. I make mistakes. I can be wrong, but I share Christ's words because they have unique authority. And his authority means that his words should be listened to, absorbed, and obeyed. He fulfilled God's word. He died to pay the penalty for our sin and our rejection of him. And he rose to give us new life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' words, his authority, should have ultimate control over our lives. It should lead us to know him, to worship him, to obey him. That alone is a firm foundation that will last not only through the storms of life, but through God's righteous judgment. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation that lasts other than Jesus Christ. Friends, this past year has been a reminder that this world is broken and that God's judgment is coming. It's coming according to his timing. And that fact's always true. It's always been true. But sometimes when our lives are comfortable, we forget that that's true, that God's judgment is coming. And so, in some ways, I'm not saying it, but I'm saying in some ways, I'm glad for the events of 2020 and now into 2021, because if nothing else, it shakes us out of our complacency. And so if I were you, I would figure out where my confidence and my foundation is before it's too late. Do you trust in yourself and what you do? Do you trust in what others say about you? Do you trust in some hope for a political victory, a political savior? Or do you trust in the authority of Jesus Christ? Has he built exceeding righteousness on the rock in you? If not, then come to know him. Talk to someone about him, whether you're here or you're online. Repent, turn away from spending your life focused on anything but Jesus Christ. Please, I beg you before it's too late. Talk to me, talk to someone else. Come to know Jesus Christ. Turn from sin and call out to him. Know Jesus and do what he says. It's not enough to say, oh yes, I believe in Jesus. It, that change should be reflected in our lives. That is what the Sermon on the Mount is about.
So friends, brothers and sisters, let's respond in prayer. Let's respond in praise because Jesus Christ alone is worthy.